You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Holy Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together today to sing your praises and to hear your word. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might trust more and more in the grace you have given us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A reading from Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here ends the reading. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is good to be with you today and tomorrow. As was already said, my name is Ori McFarland and I am the pastor of a Lutheran church in small town Ohio, about 30 minutes east of Columbus which means that I live in the heart of Ohio State Buckeye Territory. In case you don't know, Ohio State University is in Columbus. and I do know where I am right now. I, I do know that some small, tiny, barely discernible measure of school pride exists down here. But I have to say, I've never experienced anything quite like life in Ohio during college football season. It is a time when you will get in trouble for wearing Michigan blue, even during Advent. And a child will chastise you for saying the M word, which is Michigan, during a children's sermon. 
And the parishioner will yell out, O-H, and other parishioners will respond, I-O, during your sermon. This is difficult for me. I am from Oklahoma. I am a lifelong OU Sooners fan. The only saint I prayed to this last year was St. Baker Mayfield. So there's been some tension in my life. Uh, OU played Ohio State this last year, and we beat them. It was glorious. I was there. I loved every second of it. But then something terrible happened. OU got beat by Georgia in the college playoffs, and Ohio State won their bowl game. And all of a sudden, I had all of these Ohioans in my life thinking that they now had the high ground over me. And because I was away visiting family, they let me have it through text messages and online and social media. And in my emotionally fragile state right after defeat, when I was incredibly broken up about what had happened with a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old men that I don't know, losing a game that ultimately doesn't matter or affect me at all, in this emotional state, I thought, I shouldn't respond to these people. This, this won't go well. I might not be a pastor anymore. But I couldn't help myself. So I started lobbing what people call sick burns at my friends and acquaintances. It's the most recent and sort of distinct experience where I felt that just the tiniest instance of what St. Paul talks about in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It was like I was floating above myself, looking down in disapproval, thinking, you know, you know it's better not to do this. You know that you'll be able to give your anxiety a night off if you're not worrying about whether that one burn was a bit too hot. I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew what I should do, but it didn't help. Of course, more than this one admittedly very ridiculous example, I knew that this same pattern, this same experience, had played itself out in my life time and time again in far deeper and destructive ways, knowing what I should or shouldn't do, and then doing the opposite. And I know this kind of experience isn't unique to me, and it's not unique to you, because it's the same way that Paul describes his own experience, his own life. He tells us that as soon as God's law, his, God's will for how our life should look, as soon as it told him, you shall not covet, he knew that breaking that commandment was coming down the pipe for him. He says, when the commandment showed up, sin worked the opposite of the commandment in him. He said, you shall not covet. And he thought, well, okay, but I'd really like to be in my neighbor's financial position because his new boat sure does look nice. And Paul is sort of talking here about this old cliche of the hot stove and the young child. We all know that if you tell a young child not to touch a burning stove, that the very thing that they will then want to do is touch the burning stove. And it is a cliche, but it's also true, and it remains true for us bigger kids. Our hot stoves just tend to burn us in other ways. Whether we can't turn away from our problems with lust or pornography, or every night we're turning to that extra drink to kind of cover over the anxiety or emptiness we might have in our life. Or maybe we end another day sad and disappointed that we got just a little too angry at our kids once again. Whatever it may be, I think we often know what our life should look like. We know 
often what we should do, but we experience sin working the opposite in us. We know what to do, but it doesn't happen. And Paul describes this event very seriously. He says, in the moment when sin came to life, when it worked in him the opposite, he said, sin came to life, but I died. Of course, this is not because the commandment is bad. He says the commandment, of course, is very good. It's God's, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. It sets out his will for us. But it's because sin takes what is good and makes more sin. So as Paul confessed, I do not understand my actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I hear the law telling me what to do. And I want to do that. I want to live a life that glorifies God in faith and a life that serves my neighbor in love. But that desire so easily gets twisted. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so we end up with a kind of split within ourselves. We have the I who knows what to do, And we have the I who does the opposite. We have the I who's floating above me, looking down on the other I who is doing the thing that we know we shouldn't do. When we do this, when we think this way, we can start to make a very dangerous assumption. We can assume that the person who really knows what to do is me. And the person who does the opposite isn't really me. We'll get caught in some sin or some recurring problem And then we say something like this, either to ourselves or aloud. I don't know what happened. It wasn't really me. It wasn't me who did that. I know better. It wasn't me. Now there is an important truth about the universe which I feel compelled to share with you today. It's important, and if you believe it and cherish it, it will help you to be more closely aligned with whatever goodness exists in the world. It's this. Star Wars is way better than Star Trek. I don't think that's probably what you were expecting me to say, but it's true. I will die on that hill. They are very, very different beasts, to be clear. But anytime you have the chance, you always pick Luke Skywalker and the Force and lightsabers over Spock and Klingons, which always sounds more like a sanitary problem than anything else. But nevertheless, Star Trek does have its moments. And there is an episode in the original series, sort of way back in the day. And this, this series, this episode was called The Enemy Within. And in this episode, there is a transporter malfunction because it's Star Trek. So of course there is. And what happens is that Captain Kirk, the sort of main character and hero of the show, he gets split into two people. There's a good Kirk running around, and there is a bad Kirk running around. Good Kirk is virtuous, he's kind, he's nice to people. He sees others, and the first thing he thinks about is how he can serve them and protect them. Bad Kirk is violent, and he's hostile, selfish, and aggressive. He sees other people and wonders, what can I get from them? And the episode does a lot of interesting things but you're led throughout it to think that surely the real Captain Kirk is the good Kirk. Because doesn't he more closely resemble the good guy that we have seen be the hero in all the other episodes? And the stinger of the episode is that they're both Kirk, both the good and the bad. As good Kirk says about bad Kirk, 
He's like an animal, a thoughtless, brutal animal. And yet it's me. It's me. And that is the basic problem here. We can try to divide ourselves up between our good qualities and our bad, the person who floats above and knows and the person below who does, and yet it's all me. As Paul tells us and as he knew from his own experience, the law confronts us with this truth. It is all me. There's no part of me that I can partition off from sin and death and my failure to keep God's law, my failure to do the things that he's told me to do. And Lent is one of these few times in the church here where we decide that we're going to try to be repentant together and we're going to be remorseful about sin, whatever shape that takes. And often when we try to take repentance seriously, we turn it into this kind of exercise of making a split between the good me and the bad me. And what we want to do is to improve the bad me, mostly by depriving him of chocolate. And you laugh because it's true. <laughs> it's so flaky. More seriously, I think that you know, earnest Lenten practices of chastening our lives and prayer and reading of scripture and meeting together to worship and thinking about how we can serve our neighbors, these are all very good things. I am absolutely pro-virtue. But repentance has to be something deeper. It has to be something more subterranean that drills down below the practices of our daily lives and our attempts at self-improvement. Because often what happens when we try to improve the bad me, when we try to make that bad person better, is we end up just wanting to hide him or her. It's easier to take that person who always stays addicted, who can't quite get everything together in life, who's never quite good enough. It's easier to take that person and just hide him, to make him a little less visible to everyone else, and then we can just deal with him a little bit less. But Paul won't let us do that, and Paul won't let us do that because God won't. God won't let us hide the bad me, the one who knows what God wants from us and then does the opposite, the me who seems to only trade in disappointment and death. And the first part of repentance, of course, is just seriously owning that this bad me is me. But then we need to pay really close attention to what Paul does, because the same thing that he's going to do is true for us. He says, yeah, I continually lose this fight with sin time and time and time again. If I measure myself against the standard of God's holy law, the commandments that he's given to me, I know that I am an utter failure. I'm a disaster. He follows that truth of what the law reveals to him about himself, and he accepts it. He's in a pit, and he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't then answer, a better quiet time, or keeping my New Year's resolutions from longer than 10 days. He doesn't answer, you know, figuring out how to be nice to that jerk at work, or actually waiting till 5.30 to have my first gin and tonic. When he arrives at the deepest question of his very being, who can deliver me, a lost and broken sinner? He doesn't look at himself he stops looking at himself and he cries out, 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul moves from looking at himself to looking to Jesus Christ alone because he alone is the only one in whom there is no condemnation because he alone is the good one. And what Paul shows us is that when we look at Jesus Christ, we see him looking back at you. Jesus Christ sees you, the real you, the broken you, the anxious and sinful you, and he claims you for himself in love. He truly knows you. He even knows the you that you try to hide from yourself and from everyone else, and he loves you. And in Jesus Christ, by the gift of faith, which is God's own working in you, he knows you and he loves you and he wants to claim everything that belongs to you. He takes your brokenness and your sinfulness, your death, and he gives you his righteousness, his life, his goodness, so that the only thing that's stamped over you is not death, but forgiveness. He knows you fully and he takes it all for himself. God's grace is so deep. His love is so bottomless that he looks at the train wreck that I am, the one who keeps doing the opposite of what he's telling me to do, and he says, I love you, and in Jesus Christ I have acted to save you. Like Captain Kirk, and that is not a phrase I ever thought I'd use in a sermon. Like Captain Kirk, we can be honest about ourselves. We can know ourselves to be a sinner, to be lost and in need, We know that we can have the honesty to say, that is me. That is me who's doing the opposite. Because as we read and hear God's word, we encounter a God who knows us fully and who opens our eyes to see us as we are. As Paul says elsewhere, he says that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not give himself for the good or the righteous, but for sinners. He did not give himself for the strong, but for the weak. God knows everything that you hide in your hearts and your minds, everything that you don't want others to see. Anger, insecurity, bad habits, misplaced desires, low self-esteem, inability to trust, the abuse that you've received in the past, or maybe the abuse that you have given. He knows it all, and he loves you. That is the gospel. He knows it all, and he loves you nevertheless. If the end of our hope during this time, if everything that we come to church to do and be and think, if it's looking to ourselves, and if our repentance stops with looking at us and our attempts at self-improvement, we are looking at nothing other than an exercise in futility. In this season of Lent, and at all times, may our repentance be an honest confession of our sins and needs. But may it even more than that be an earnest looking to Jesus Christ, knowing that he has given us his never-ending grace. Because in Jesus Christ, God has declared his love to you. Not just to everyone else here, not just to the person who is sitting next to you, not just to the good you, but to you, to all of you. God really and truly and fully, even right now, loves you and forgives you of all your sins. Because God's love is the kind of love that looks at sinners and says you are righteous. And it's the kind of love that looks at what to us and to all the world seems broken and out of shape and unlovable. And it says you are 
my beloved. And that is what Jesus Christ says to each and every single one of you today. You are my beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.